You're listening to the WChat Podcast with Drs. Nicole Lowe and Stephanie Edmonds, and this is episode 13, Human Trafficking with Drs. Aisha Mays and Susie Baldwin. and welcome to WChat. Today we are interviewing two guests, Dr. Susie Baldwin and Dr. Aisha Mays, regarding their work with trafficked adolescents and women. You may remember Dr. Aisha Mays from a previous episode about communicating with adolescents, where we promised to talk more about her work with trafficked adolescents. So welcome back, Dr. Mays, and welcome, Dr. Baldwin. Thanks. Thank you. We genuinely think this is an episode that all providers should listen to, and we hope that you will find this episode as informative as we do. And if you do find this episode as informative as we do and want to keep the show recording, rate us on iTunes and become a patron of the WChat podcast. You can find out more information about becoming a patron on our website, www.womancenteredhealth.com. So, as always, we like to start our episode by having you each give our listeners a little background about who we are speaking with. So, if you could both talk a little bit about yourself. So, tell our listeners about your background, your education, and your training in your current practice setting, like where you practice and the type of patients you serve. And if you want to start, Dr. Mays. Hi, everyone. I'm happy to be back and to be discussing this really important topic with Dr. Baldwin as well. She and I are good colleagues and this colleagues in this work and so happy to be doing this with her. Just a little bit about me. I won't go into huge detail. I talked about some of my background around education on the last podcast and I'm a family physician. I focus my uh, work specifically with adolescents. So my entire career has been focused on adolescents and uh, particularly uh, vulnerable youth. My work is centered in the Bay Area and particularly Oakland, California, where I have worked in uh, several settings with adolescents, including juvenile hall and school-based health centers and community health centers. And most recently, I opened my own clinic in the uh, homeless shelter in uh, downtown Oakland, the Dream Youth Clinic. And that's where my work here in Oakland has really informed my specific practice with, with young people and uh, more specifically working with uh, young people who've, who have experienced sexual exploitation, sex trafficking, sexual human trafficking. Back in 2008, when I was the medical director at, at Juvenile Hall in Oakland, I actually remember being uh, at my interview and someone who was interviewing me talking to me about young girls who had experienced prostitution and you kept using this word prostitution. And it was really unbelievable to me. I'm actually from the Bay Area. And I thought of myself as a very socially connected and social, socially conscious uh, provider. And I didn't believe it and really thought that it was just another sort of negative mark that people use for Oakland. But when as I really began in that role and talking to young people, mainly working with young people in the clinic at the juvenile hall and asking them about just about things that they were they were going on in their lives and, and had gotten some disclosures around transactional sex and also learning from community partners, which I'm sure we'll talk more about. I really start to learn more about the sort of the scope of the issue in the Bay Area and became very committed and passionate about really working with young people who have been have experienced this type of trauma and also working with the healthcare community and, and how we can learn more about how to support young people and do our part with advocacy. 
Great. Thank you, Dr. Mays. Dr. Baldwin, would you like to give us a little bit about your background? Sure. Thank you. And thanks to Stephanie Nicole for having me and, and to Dr. Mays for inviting me to join her on this. And we can talk a little bit more about the work we're doing together in the Bay Area later on. So my background, like Dr. Mays, I've always focused on vulnerable populations and primarily for me in reproductive and sexual health and in women's health. I am a preventive medicine and public health physician, and my day job, as of tomorrow, I will be the medical director in the Office of Women's Health at Los Angeles County Department of Public Health. But what brings me to this podcast is more of my work with human trafficking, which has largely been on the side of my actual day job, although it, it has overlapped during many of the years, and it will again. I moved to LA in 2004 uh, after leaving Arizona, where I had been medical director of Planned Parenthood and then worked on the U.S.-Mexico border in a rural region. And I moved to L.A. and I was a volunteer attending at the OBGYN clinic for the UCLA Medical Center. And I was invited to participate as the GYN person in a new clinic that was starting up for survivors of human trafficking. And I said, sure, what's human trafficking? I had never heard that term before. But I quickly learned what it was, and it definitely sounded right up my alley and a lot of overlap with populations I'd worked with, bef with before. I did a review in the medical literature and found one article that was basically a review of a report that had come out in 2003 by Kathy Zimmerman, who's one of the premier researchers on human trafficking and health in the world and is continuing to produce great work, talking about people who had been sex trafficked in Europe from many different countries and what the health effects were of this. And I started seeing patients at this new clinic in LA. And as I said, I was brought on originally to do the pap smears, the STD tests, to handle the sexual health and the reproductive health, contraception. The clinic didn't work out the way we anticipated it to for a number of reasons. And I wound up just being the clinic for the next seven years. So I was doing the primary care and the reproductive health care. So I saw adult patients starting at 18. I'm not a pediatrician or adolescent medicine specialist, although 18, 19, 20-year-olds have a lot in common with, with teenagers, up to 24 even, as we call transitional-aged youth. But my patients were foreign nationals, and they were survivors of both sex trafficking and labor trafficking. They came from literally all over the world. Almost well, Antarctica wasn't represented and Australia wasn't represented, but I had people from all every other continent and many different languages spoken with interpreters. And I learned a lot from my patients because of the dearth of knowledge and information in the medical literature. So I really became somebody who appreciated and respected the survivor voice and the survivor input in what is happening to people in these situations and what scars them when they come out of it. So that's been an emphasis of mine moving forward is to always listen to the people that the this crime is happening to. So then uh, the other thing that brings me to the podcast with Dr. Mays is that in 2013, I was a co-founder of the organization Heal Trafficking. And Heal stands for Health Education Advocacy and Linkage. And we came together in an attempt to synthesize the work that was going on 
by healthcare professionals and public health professionals around the United States. Because when I started doing my clinic, I worked in isolation. I worked in isolation for many years until 2011. So probably six years, I didn't know a single other person that was taking care of patients like this. And as I said, there was not much I could look up online either or in the library. So eventually people started popping up around the country as the issue gained more awareness and traction in the U.S. And we realized that people in different parts of the country were recreating the wheel, basically. And we needed to put our efforts together so we could accomplish more. And we needed a network so that we could communicate with each other and develop best practices and figure out what the evidence was for what we were doing. And heel trafficking grew out of that. And we're now, we have about 1,500 people on our listserv. We have a lot of people who are very active doing clinical care, advocacy, research, education, and training. And policy, I said the advocacy work, so we're involved in policy. And we're hoping to address human trafficking from a public health perspective, meaning that most of the work in this country around trafficking has been focused on the criminal justice response. And it's really, it takes that element of prostitution that's involved in sex trafficking and targets a lot of law enforcement resources toward that. And a public health approach is looking more at what are the conditions that lead to human trafficking in the first place? What are the vulnerabilities? What do we do to keep people healthy if they are involved in this kind of life and aren't able to get out? And what happens when they do get out? And how do we take care of them and help them heal and become healthy again? So first off, I don't know if there's a congratulations in order because it sounds like maybe you got a promotion that starts tomorrow, but (laughs) uh, good luck in your new role. Another question, and you really both hit on this a little bit in your responses that we like to ask all of our guests is what informs your perspective or your practice? So why do you do what you do? What is most valuable? And what's your philosophy of practice? And if you want to start this time, Dr. Baldwin? I guess I would say that my whole motivation throughout my career has been to reduce suffering. And as an abortion provider, as I was for many years, that's what that's what drove me in that work. And that's what drives me in my work in anti-trafficking efforts. And everything is also informed by the health equity perspective that all people should have access to all that they need in their lives to be healthy and well, and that there should be health justice. I also am strongly, as I mentioned before, it's really important to me to listen to the voices of those who experience things. So whether it's patient-centered care or survivor-centered care, that means a lot. And then finally, in the last few years, we've been very involved in doing work that's trauma-informed. And trauma-informed care is not something that I was ever taught about in my training. I think it's becoming a little more commonly discussed nowadays, but it's basically recognizing the impact of trauma on people's minds, our brain, our neurology, and our behaviors, and how Trauma can affect how we interact with healthcare providers, how we interact with all the people in our lives, and how we even interact with our own illnesses and symptoms. And seeing that integrated into all that I do and all that the healthcare system does, respecting that and acknowledging it, and especially since we have so much trauma and violence in this country. Yeah, thank you. Um, What about you, Dr. Mays? I know we talked about this on the previous episode, but if you could share with us what informs your perspective in regards to human trafficking. Yeah, I think that what 
informs my perspective, specifically around human trafficking and working with young people who have experienced commercial sexual exploitation is really serving in a large area of need. And that really informs my overall practice. It's really important for me to serve where there's need. And I think that's one of the things that really drew me to the area of human trafficking with young people. It was a a need that I realized was there was a, a hole, there was something missing in the healthcare community. It was also something I wasn't even aware of when I started that initial position back in 2008. And and so just recognizing that area of need and that there were young people who were really experiencing significant trauma and who were looking for healthy adults and uh, healthy partnerships. And so really addressing that. What also informs my practice in this work is supporting empowerment and agency for young people who've experienced sexual trauma in this way, and really trying to think creatively about how I, as a healthcare provider, can help to um, support the empowerment of a young person who's had this type of history. And again, not saying that I'm empowering them or not saying that I'm providing agency for them because I don't believe that we can provide agency or empowerment for anyone because we already have all those tools. But it's really how can we support that and how can we help to uncover some of those things that may have either been diminished because of trauma or that are have not yet been discovered because of youth development. Uh, and then I will say the last thing that's been very rich and fruitful in working with young people around uh, human trafficking, sexual exploitation, have been really the community partners in, in doing this work and working with young people, working with adults who've experienced human trafficking, who've experienced experienced sexual exploitation, and how we really can't do this work in in silos. Healthcare is one part of the team and really taking direction from our community partners who do the day-to-day groundwork with clients, with young people, with adults who have done this work for years and really us working in a very interdisciplinary fashion to address the needs of our patients. Great. So like we said, today we're going to discuss human trafficking. So let's jump in. So our first question is, can you explain what trafficking is and if there are different types? Sure. So human trafficking, I'll explain it how it's defined in the United States since we're based in the U.S. It is defined by an action, a means, and a purpose. The action being that you harbor, recruit, obtain, transport somebody. And note that transporting somebody or moving somebody is part of what can constitute trafficking, but is not required to be to traffic somebody. You don't have to move somebody physically at all to traffic them. By the means of force, fraud, or coercion, and those are the key legal terms that have to be proven to demonstrate that someone has been trafficked, force, fraud, or coercion for the purposes of commercial sexual exploitation or labor exploitation, which involves indentured servitude, debt bondage, hard labor, uh, a number of um, different categories of forced labor. And the exception to the forced fraud or coercion rule is that if a minor, that is somebody under the age of 18, is induced to perform a commercial sex act, then they are by definition a victim of human trafficking. And that would be the population that Aisha has been working with. So in this country, 
country, the anti-trafficking movement is very much focused on sex trafficking, but labor trafficking is equally prevalent, at least as far as we know. The numbers we have on trafficking are very, uh, how should we say, mushy. Nobody really knows how many people are trafficked in the United States, whether they're coming, being brought into the United States from overseas or being trafficked right here at home, primarily which we see among youth who are being trafficked for sex. And then we see adults trafficked also for sex, sometimes labor, and we see a lot of foreign nationals trafficked for both in the U.S. And this definition of trafficking comes from the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, which is U.S. law that was first signed in 2000 and has been reauthorized several times since. To add to some of Susie's definition specifically around children, I just really want to highlight that the force, fraud, coercion, abduction, does not ha- manipulation does not have to be in place, does not have to be something that you prove in order to say that a a young person, a minor under the age of 18 has been involved with commercial sexual exploitation. And so we're using these terms, you're hearing human trafficking, you're hearing commercial sexual exploitation, is that the same thing? And there are many terms that we think about with this work. For simplicity, commercial sexual exploitation is a form of human trafficking. It is trafficking a person for the explicit reasons for gain, monetary, or some other tangible type of gain from a minor. Uh, We talk about transactional sex that happens with commercial sexual exploitation. It doesn't actually have to be an exchange of money. It could be an exchange for basic needs. It could be exchange for something that that young person feels like they need or for no particular reason. It doesn't have to be money. And also, it doesn't have to be Uh, It can be different types of sexual acts. It doesn't actually have to be sex. So dancing is included in that. Pornography, working in particular types of sex, the sex industry also counts as commercial sexual sexual exploitation. And I want to make one other point about age. So uh, in terms of law, we think about uh, young people who have been defined or coined as young people who have been involved in commercial sexual exploitation as being under the age of 18. But we know that there are also young people above the age of 18, between 18, 20, 21, 24, who are also involved in commercial sexual exploitation. And it really looks the same. And so we have these sort of hard definitions around age. But as far as the way that people show up and what they need for services, including medical services and social services, look very similarly. When a person becomes the age of 19, it doesn't mean that now they are healed from the wounds that happen when they're a minor around sexual exploitation. Thank you. And can I add to that a bit? Yes, of course. Yeah, so Aisha's point is really important because the laws don't necessarily reflect the reality. And once a person turns 18, they may no longer be entitled to the services and protections that we are now offering in our state and many other places around the country to youth who experience sex trafficking or commercial sexual exploitation. And those services should also be available to people over the age of 18 who have experienced this, where something is being done to them, they are being manipulated into performing commercial sex acts. 
and the laws are far behind where we need to be to be able to take care of these people properly. And we're on a women's health podcast, but it's largely women, but this also happens to males and to transgender people. So it can be any gender of person that's experiencing this commercial sexual exploitation. And I also wanted to say that given that I think the podcast has a, a sort of feminist bent, that for me, it's really important also to draw a line that not all commercial sex is commercial sexual exploitation. And there are adults who choose to engage in commercial sex work that are being potentially harmed by anti-trafficking efforts that are now really seeking out to end prostitution in the name of ending trafficking. And at least for me, when I talk about trafficking, I'm not talking about prostitution or sex work. No, thank you for that clarification. Could you please talk about what the current state of human trafficking is in America? Yeah, you know, I think that that's a that's a great and, and very broad question and, and can be answered in multiple ways. I'm glad that we're, you know, we're talking about this. And, and what I will say about the current state of sex trafficking and human trafficking in America is one of the, the biggest issues around us trying to sort of capture and really drill down around numbers and who's affected and gender and race, ethnicity can be uh, difficult for several reasons, depending on how where, how the research is done and which populations we're looking at. We may not have an accurate count or accurate numbers of what human trafficking looks like. Also, it's overall hidden here. Makes it difficult for us to really come up with very clear estimates of the problem. We do know that the numbers are much more profound than what we have estimated. And so I, I really stray away from actually talking about numbers. And we'll talk about more about this when we talk about assessment and how to uh, engage patients and really caring for patients who may be at risk of human trafficking. And so that's, that's what I want to offer to that. So to add to Aisha's remarks about race and ethnicity, I think an important thing to look at with commercial sexual exploitation of youth is that some of the numbers, at least in, in Los Angeles County, where I live, that have been bounced around are that 92% of the girls trafficked for sex in Los Angeles are African American. And this number was derived at through the counts in the probation system, basically juvenile justice and juvenile detention, which is where this work started very honorably in LA County, identifying these kids as victims, not as, as perpetrators as they were arrested for. But given that our criminal justice system is heavily biased and that we know African Americans faced many more interactions with law enforcement are much more likely to be jailed than people of other races and ethnicities. Saying that 92% of the kids who experience this are Black or African-American when they are disproportionately arrested for prostitution, it doesn't reflect the whole population to whom this is happening. The same way that law enforcement and even social service agencies at this point are identifying a lot of female children and, and youth who are being sex trafficked. But just because we're not necessarily finding the boys and the gender and sexual minorities doesn't mean they're not being trafficked. It means that we haven't even found out to figure out how to look for them and how to make them comfortable 
admitting that this is happening to them. So that's a big challenge. There are also some statistics that are used commonly in the anti-trafficking movement that are not grounded in evidence. And at Heal Trafficking, we're trying really hard to um, spread the message that when you share statistics about trafficking and the numbers in the United States in particular, you should know where those numbers come from and how they got to those numbers. Because for example, the statistic that 48 within 48 to 72 hours, a homeless youth on the street is going to be trafficked. We don't have a lot of evidence that that's true. We know that kids who are homeless are at much higher risk for engaging in survival sex and therefore being commercially sexually exploited. But we don't know that it's true that within three days of being on the street, that's going to happen to them. And I could go through a lot of other statistics like that. So for your listeners, I would just suggest that when you read a number about trafficking, don't accept it, accept it with a grain of salt, because it very well may be somebody's derivation of a number that is not based in fact. I also wanted to mention labor trafficking, that it's really difficult to count labor trafficking because there hasn't been much of an effort to identify it in the U.S. And it's also a blurry line between labor trafficking and labor exploitation. And we have a lot of people working in the shadows in our economy. We have, a you know, our, our country runs on a low-wage service economy, and a lot of people are struggling just to get by, and a lot of work is being done underground. And now... I fear that with the current immigration climate where people are becoming increasingly afraid of the government, that more and more of the exploitation that's happening in different labor sectors is not going to be acknowledged or spoken about, and people are less likely to seek help. I mean, that's true across the board, whether it be exploited for sex or labor. And sex is a form of labor for many people. So the state of things in the United States, I think, from the perspective of the victims, it's not looking very good right now for us to be able to reach everyone who needs help. Well, I think that both of you really highlight how complex this issue is. And so my next question is, is given how complex this issue is, what roles do providers have in stopping trafficking? Healthcare providers play a major role with trafficking. We know from several studies that People who are victims of human trafficking seek health services while they are trafficked. And the numbers range from a high of nearly 88% seek healthcare services while they're trafficked. And this was a study of sex trafficking victims in the United States. They were all women, they were all English speaking, and 88% of them reported that they saw a physician or other healthcare provider while they were trafficked. And it ranges all the way down to a study done in the early 2000s, uh, foreign national victims in San Francisco and, oh gosh, I'm forgetting the other cities. Um, It was done by what was then the Family Violence Prevention Project, which is now Futures Without Violence. And of their sample, it was 27% of people they interviewed had seen a healthcare provider. So the truth lies somewhere in between, but that's a very high percentage. Even if it's half, we know that we have opportunities to intervene and educate and empower patients so that they are either able to leave their situation or that they know that someday if they want to, help is available for them. And we can also connect them with referrals and services whether or not they 
leave trafficking, whether or not they're able to leave trafficking at the moment we see them. And healthcare providers also play an important role in prevention. I think that's especially true with youth. And Dr. Mays will be able to talk about that more. But with any patient who's in a vulnerable position, whether because they are an immigrant or don't speak English or or gender and sexual minority, LGBTQ, they can benefit from healthcare providers working to empower them and enable them to prevent exploitation. Yeah, and we also see similar numbers in the adolescent and young adult population. There was a study done in 2008 that looked at young people who had identified as having transactional sex. And the reason why I say transactional sex as opposed to being commercially sexually exploited is because some young people don't identify in that way. They don't place those labels in that way. And so that's also something really important for healthcare providers, for us to have this information and this language that we know about exploitation, but also not to be wedded to labels so that we are sort of walking around in our practices and saying, I have a CSEC youth. And so CSEC is the acronym that's often used for commercial sexual exploitation of children, because those labels, again, have a sense of permanence for that young person and really implies that that is where they are in their lives and that's who they are. But really, we think about young people who are being affected by or involved with commercial sexual exploitation. So in 2008, when this study looked at young people who had had transactional sex in this way, over 50% of them sought healthcare services and sought healthcare services for a range of things, including physical exams, STI testing, HIV testing. And so we know they were showing up in medical clinics and in addition to emergency rooms, it just it wasn't just emergency room visits. And so it really, we know that there is a major opportunity and need for healthcare providers to understand what some of the overt risk factors may be that lend a young person vulnerable to commercial sexual exploitation, but also realizing that it's really important for universal screening. And so they we are not bringing uh, our biases into the room and thinking when we see a young person who's been involved in juvenile hall, or if we have a young person who may be in the foster care system, we've been to a training and learned that young people in those situations are vulnerable, that we're, we're talking to them about or, or our, our radar is up around exploitation, but it's not up with another young person who also might be very vulnerable. So really having the information and applying that universally around assessment is something really important that healthcare providers can do to help to address the needs of young people who've been trafficked. So I have a couple of questions related to what you both said. So you spoke about adults and then also young people. I'm assuming that there are are laws related to a youth screen positive as someone who's being sexually exploited? Is that true? Or could you talk about that? I'm glad that you brought that up uh, because there are laws, commercial sexual exploitation of minors and is illegal. And it is something that in the position of a healthcare provider, healthcare providers are mandated reporters and something that has to be reported. Depending on the state that you live in, not all uh, states consider exploitation from a person who's not a family member to fall under child abuse. And so where it would be 
uh, reported might be different, but it is a reportable issue. Reporting can be complex. Reporting can be useful for lots of reasons. It creates a, a paper trail that can then protect the young person and help the young person if and when, and hopefully the exploiter, there's prosecution against the exploiter. Um, I have worked with young people in the past who have been able to amass their CPS, Child Protective Services reports, and that can was used to actually prosecute their exploiter. And so we know that there is can be useful in that way, can be useful in also protecting the young person in, in real time, depending on the, the response and how reports are responded to in that particular county. CPS reports can also not be as helpful for the young person if there is not a clear safety plan for how that young person is going to is going to remain safe now that that report has happened. We often talk about if we've made a report and there's a connection with either the exploiter or with the family that may know about the exploitation and we haven't created a safe place for that young person, then we could really be putting them in harm's way. And so it really is a fine balance that we have to strike. In addition to letting that per- the young person know about the limits of confidentiality, because we also, again, we're in this medical space where we provide a safe, confidential space for young people to talk about their needs. And if there is a disclosure around them hurting themselves, them have the intent to hurting someone else or someone hurting them in the case of exploitation, then the medical provider is required to uh, report that. And so that really has to be discussed with the young person before we delve into sensitive conversations. And the reporting issue also applies to adults in certain states where there are laws that you must, as a mandated reporter, you must report injuries that result from a firearm or from an assault That's, for example, the case in California. And some states have domestic violence reporting laws. And it's not uncommon for trafficking to overlap with an intimate partner violence scenario because it's often the person exploiting your patient might also be the person they consider to be their partner. And that makes it tricky, too. And people are sometimes afraid of reporting domestic violence to us as healthcare providers because they are worried about losing their children if there's violence in the home. So that's a whole nother layer of complexity about getting people to disclose what's happening to them. Also, because we are seeing this in diverse clinical settings, like Dr. Mays mentioned before, we know that aside from emergency rooms that get a lot of the attention for identifying trafficking victims, OBGYN offices are a common place. You know, p- when people are pregnant, they seek health care. We know that's an important window for women to interact with us and for us to potentially provide intervention that they're not going to get otherwise. And similarly, family planning clinics and Title X clinics and STD clinics are places where people who are being actively trafficked may show up. That being said, I did want to put a little bit of a caveat on the idea of universal screening because, so I I mentioned my backgrounds in, in public health and preventive medicine. And when you're Screening for a disease, like we do, for example, with colon cancer or cervical cancer, one of the criteria of doing a screening and trying to catch something early is that your intervention is going to improve outcomes for the patient. And unfortunately, we don't really know yet that what we are, and I think, I think what's happening in the Bay Area, in San Francisco, and part, 
probably in parts of California and some other states that are are taking somewhat progressive stances on this, that there are services in place so that once you identify a youth or an adult as being trafficked for sex or labor, there are services you can offer them and an attorney to help them and a caseworker to help them manage what's happening. The same way if you identify someone who has domestic violence, if they're ready to get out of that relationship and out of that house, you need to have a place for them to go. And with trafficking, if somebody admits to you in your clinic or office that they are trafficked or, you know, they don't use that word, of course, but if they admit enough of what's happening to them that you think, oh my God, I think this person is being trafficked. Number one, you can call the human trafficking hotline, which we'll talk about later, but we really face a dearth of resources in most communities around the country to adequately support these patients. And it's important to have a system in place before you start, quote, screening people to see if they're trafficked. Because if you don't know what to do or who to call in your area, and you have nothing to offer this person after they have disclosed something that's very difficult to disclose, you have potentially done more harm than good. So it is a very complicated issue. And the really the solution to this problem I'm describing is that we fund the agencies all around this country that are trying to take care of people who have experienced not just trafficking, but domestic violence, child abuse, and other forms of abuse. I completely agree with you. I want to echo that, Susie. I completely agree and really want to highlight the importance of the community partners and how they really are central to providing the support that's necessary when we are working with patients who can be affected by human trafficking, by commercial sexual exploitation. And it really is about assessment. And so I am a proponent of universal assessment with community support and us really delving into working collaboratively with our community partners to see where our, where the supports are for people who have experienced trafficking and then what's missing. What do we need to fill in? What models do we need to see that are working well in other counties, in other states? I'm in the Bay Area where we have been doing this work for years and there, and it really started from the community partners. It didn't start from the healthcare providers. Really, community partners have helped to uh, help the healthcare providers realize that we need to catch up. But in other places where there are not as many community partners doing the scope of services, it's still important in those spaces that those services be built out, that those relationships be be built and trying to figure out what are some some good models. I mean, I don't like to use best practices so much because best practice is what is what's best for your community. And also realizing that it's it's still important for us to assess patients and to provide support for them. Screening and, and having the, the perfect language and the perfect questions to ask a person so that we have a disclosure is the least important, but really looking at what are some key indicators, what may be some red flags, what may be some things that come up that we can then provide support around. And uh, it's important for us to really work collaboratively in the community to be able to provide that support. So I'm going to have both of you kind of back up. I know that you both have mentioned screening, universal screening. And I'm just wondering, uh, Dr. Maisie most recently mentioned looking for signs rather than a particular question. So what signs or questions can providers ask or look for to screen a patient as a potential victim of trafficking? So there isn't any specific 
set of signs and symptoms that a person is trafficked, but there are many, many different behavioral attributes and physical signs and symptoms that you can pull together, sort of creating a constellation of things that are going to set off little bells in your head when you think of them together. So it varies everything from the person's behavior in the waiting room, if they're accompanied by somebody who seems controlling of them, if they seem to have a flat affect or they're scared or they're nervous or they're angry and hostile, which is seen more commonly, at least as reported, with youth who are trafficked. They may also be unwilling to look in your eyes and speak to you if they're a foreign national survivor of trafficking. And again, somebody may be speaking for them. There may be telltale physical signs of sex trafficking, like someone who's dressed inappropriately for the weather, somebody who's carrying a couple of cell phones, hotel keys. One of the things we find is that sometimes the visits are paid for in cash and that people who are, are trafficked for sex are sometimes like literally paying for their healthcare visit on their way to or from the doctor or the hospital. Aisha, you want to jump in? There's so much. Yeah, there are so many things. And I think that people who are coming in requesting multiple SCI testings in, in a row, we see that with, with young people in, in lots of circumstances. Maybe people who are also coming in asking for emergency contraception on many occasions. It really is a constellation of signs and particular uh, symptoms. And also just a feeling that something is not right, that this young person or this adult is potentially in harm's way and is experiencing being coerced in some way, being made to do something they're not comfortable with in some way. Using a universal education approach where you teach all your patients about healthy relationships or what, how important relationships are to your health and make sure they understand what is not healthy. Because again, there's a lot of overlap between some of these trafficking situations and intimate partner violence. I also wanted to say that about the frequent requests for STI testing, that works in certain populations for a red flag for CSEC. But as somebody who works at an STD clinic, a lot of our men who have sex with men come in for STI testing all the time. And that's something we want them to do. So again, it depends on what your clinical setting is, whether certain criteria is going to work. Other signs are, for example, delaying care, being exhausted, and all these very nonspecific things that might be very common in our society for various social and economic reasons, but put all together with the other things you're finding on your history and exam might raise red flags for you that something is up with this patient. And sometimes it's really just a gut feeling too, that something is not adding up. Um, People who are trafficked are often historians as well. Their story may not make sense or it may change or it may be circular. They sometimes don't know where they actually live. That's a red flag. If their documentation has been taken from them, that's a red flag. And one thing about the story changing is that's something that can be very frustrating for a healthcare provider when you can't get a straight history about an injury or a condition. But often victims are trained to lie. And the other thing is that sometimes they honestly can't tell tell you a straight story because their memory is so impacted by trauma. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that we really can't point to any one sign or symptom and any one sign or symptom taken in a silo is not something that we can use with any certainty to tell us that this person is being trafficked, like frequent STI tests or like 
not knowing where you live because I work with young people and some of them don't know their address or they don't know their social security number. And it doesn't mean that they're trafficked. It really is a constellation of things and which is why it's really important, the rapport building. And it's also really important not to jump into asking what we think are the best screening questions. So this is not about screening, but this is really about overall assessment. And because with assessment, there is no disclosure needed in order to provide support. You have an assessment, you see that there's a need and you can provide information based on the assessment and the patient doesn't need to disclose anything to you to for you to be able to provide information about services. That's what our overall goal is, is really to provide support and rapport. So that patient then comes back to you and you're able to see them again. And often I've seen young people four, five and six times and having encounters with them before they opened up and really told me the extent of the trauma that they were experiencing. But all throughout from the first encounter, I still can provide support. I still can provide resources that are useful. That is such an important point. I think there's so much emphasis across the country on teaching people how to identify victims. And again, with doctors especially, I think we're more guilty of this than than nurses. People want clear answers and they want to fix it now. So you want somebody to tell you whether or not they're trafficked. And that cannot be our goal. That is not the most important thing. The most important thing is what Dr. Mays is explaining. That's establishing rapport and providing the resources that they need, whether or not they tell you what's happening to them that day or that month or that year or ever. There's still ways to help people. And it's also so important to realize that even if you're not getting the reward that you want that day of them admitting to you what's happening or telling you they're definitely going to get help by providing that kind of support and giving them resources, you are, as we call, planting seeds in their brain that help is available, that hope is available, that they may turn to in the future versus countering a healthcare provider who doesn't show any compassion or concern for their well-being that may turn them off from going to another doctor or a nurse practitioner in the future. So it sounds like there's possibly two avenues or two scenarios, one in which the care provider kind of has this feeling that something's happening, and then possibly one where the patient says, this is what's going on. In this scenario where a provider has a feeling that this is happening, how should they proceed? Do they say something to the patient? What do they do? How do they communicate? Yes, I guess I want to speak to the feelings first. And this is why I do think it's important to, to lead universally. So around universal assessment and not around targeted assessments or targeted screening, because we all know that we have, there's an implicit bias in medicine is a real concept and that some patients are targeted or thought to be at higher risk, so to speak, for things based on their sociodemographic, based on sort of structural vulnerabilities and that can deserve the patients. And also not be, you're not able to provide the support for other patients who also may be affected. So I think it's really important to lead universally with working with patients and so our and our gut feeling also leading universally. I do think that when a provider has that gut feeling, going back to establishing rapport, because really the rapport building is the, the most important thing so that we can provide support. So again, remembering that the goal is not around screening with the best question so that we have a disclosure on that day, but it really is about connecting 
with the patient and being a, a healthy interaction and a healthy support for that patient. And so what I do is try and get to know the patient and ask them the same questions I would ask other patients. And sometimes patients may ask you, why are you asking me this? Or why do you want to know that? Or I've noticed that sometimes some patients can be more sensitive around exams that seem benign to me, like the lung exam. Well, why do you want to do that? Or why do you want to look at my abdomen. And so again, using all that information to have a clear assessment that there may be something that is out of the ordinary here and using that constellation of information that we have around trauma to be able to provide support for the patient. And if you do think that the person in front of you is trafficked and in need of assistance and you don't know what to do, you can call the National Human Trafficking Hotline and... We at Heal Trafficking put out what we call a protocol toolkit for developing a response to human trafficking victims in healthcare settings. And it outlines a lot of these ideas, starting with knowing your community resources and building relationships in your community, and then going through what components are in your healthcare institution, whether it's a clinic or a hospital or a school-based health center, things that you'd want to incorporate into your policies. And it does give guidance on all the different agencies you could contact for assistance with somebody who wants assistance. But again, given the current state of affairs, for example, if you think somebody is being trafficked for labor, you used to be able to call the Federal Department of Labor. And I'm not sure that's the case anymore, particularly if somebody's undocumented. So Again, knowing locally what's happening is the best way to know who to call and what's available. And again, this may not be true in some areas. Like, for example, I was at the Native American Sex Trafficking in Indian Country Conference, a federally sponsored conference a couple of weeks ago. And it turns out that on a lot of our Indian reservations around the country, and this may be true also in many rural areas around the country that aren't Native, there are simply no resources. So even if you are a rape victim, you may have to go four hours to get help. So rape is horrible, but it can be legally and medically more simple to address in the short term than somebody who's been trafficked. So the dearth of resources makes it difficult, but let me bring up the National Human Trafficking Hotline and share that with with your listeners. And a lot of local areas have a human trafficking task force that you can tap into to find out what resources are available if somebody is ready to get help, um, ready to talk to an attorney, ready to be have a case manager help them get on a different path to life. And sometimes in these cases, you have to get involved with law enforcement, and that can be a, a deterrent for some patients. So I don't know if I missed this or not, but so what would you say to the patient? Like, would you do ask them point blank or how do you approach them? Well, I can tell you what I did in a recent encounter some months ago. And again, it's different for each patient for me, but sort of overall, again, I either work with, I'm working with minors or I'm working with transitionally aged youth. And so it, it can be different in terms of the limits of confidentiality. But let's say I'm working with a minor. I always lead when I start to talk about sensitive issues with, I just want to let you know that everything that we talk in this, about in this room is confidential. That means it's private. That means by law, I'm not allowed to speak with anyone about what's your medical care, what we talk about in here, unless you tell me you're going to hurt yourself, hurt someone else, or if someone is hurting you. And if they are, then that's something that I would have to report by law. And then I will ask them. So in this scenario, after seeing this patient twice, I brought up that I feel concerned. Uh, Sometimes we notice that young people are being asked to have sex with other people for money. And if that's something that was happening to this young person. 
Uh, and so it was just a very sort of clear cl- question. But again, this is not any sort of validated question. There are several questions that people use. And the young person at that point, we had seen each other a few times and the young person felt more safe to actually have a conversation about that. And I then allowed the young person to tell me what that meant and what was happening. And the young person told me that there had been reports made and we talked about, and so they already knew about the CPS reporting system. And we talked about how I would make another report. And it's recommended that you involve the patient in reporting. You let them know what's going to be reported, how you're going to be reporting it, because really that mandated reporting moment can be a space that really breaks the trust between the provider and the patient. And it's especially when we're working with patients with young people who have had multiple instances in their lives where trust has been broken. It's really important to really maintain that trust. And so I feel like transparency is the most important thing. The next thing that I did was making sure that that young person was safe. So safety is really the number one thing that I think about, making sure that patient is safe right there, making sure that they are going to be safe when they leave the clinic, if they don't feel like they're going to be safe, making a safety plan and thinking about, again, that's where our community partners come in, our housing partners, thinking about where is their safe housing, where are their community-based organizations that work with people who have been affected by human trafficking, by sexual exploitation, that can then follow up with them that evening, the next day, when I don't see the patient in the clinic anymore. And so that's how that scenario played out. Okay, thank you. A a good resource for people who want to look at the wording like Aisha's using to break this, uh, bring this up with a youth, Asian Health Services is a clinic in Oakland, and they have a CSEC screening protocol or assessment protocol where they include the language that you can use to bring this up with a youth and that's available online for free download Asian health services in Oakland. I also wanted to add that I had a patient, sometimes it goes the other way. I had a patient STD clinic, a young woman who had a dollar sign tattoo by her collarbone and she was in an STD clinic to get tested. And we do sometimes get people who are engaged in commercial sex work in the STD clinic. And we also know that dollar signs are one of the signs that sometimes pimps will use on people they are trafficking, you know, to make brand them as their property. There's a number of different kinds of tattoos that different pimps use and certain gangs in different areas of the country or your city may have their own insignia that they put on people. And I went, you know, I talked to her about it a, a couple of times and different ways. And of course, in the context of an, a reproductive health visit or an STI visit, it's not as difficult to broach the subject of commercial sex as it is an appointment, say, if they're there for, a, if you're a dentist or if you're seeing them for a primary care visit. Well, you should be talking about sexual health and primary care visit, but you know, maybe they're for a broken bone. It's hard to bring up sex, even though you see a dollar sign tattoo. But by the end of the visit, I was reassured that this woman just, she was a little embarrassed about her dollar sign tattoo. She'd gotten it when she was younger, but I really saw no indication that she had ever been commercially sexually exploited. And that said, I wanted to point out that it's not just our role to identify victims who are currently being trafficked, but also realize that survivors of this crime are walking around. Many of them are thriving. Many of them are not. But either way, when they come into your waiting room, they are not going to write on their form that they are a survivor of human trafficking. So to exercise the sort of universal precautions approach, the trauma-informed approach where you don't know what people have been through, and you're not going to assume the worst, but you're going to treat patients kindly and 
with the understanding that they may have experienced something like this in their past. And again, creating a safe space for them to talk about it when they're ready to. And as far as the safety plan, I also wanted to add that sometimes you won't have the opportunity to, I mean, Dr. Mays has this ongoing clinic and a community that's very rich in resources. And if you're hearing this in other parts of the country, you may not have that. And also sometimes even if you do have resources, your patient may not be ready mentally, emotionally to realize that he or she is being exploited, being trafficked. We use the stages of change model where people go through different stages of getting to a decision, of making, getting ready to make a change in their life. And making the decision to even recognize that you're not safe, that's a process in itself for a lot of people who are trafficked because they believe that the person who is doing this to them cares about them or they're so afraid of what the options are that they're just putting their blinders on and, and staying where they are. And one of the saddest things with the young women I've met in LA County who have been commercially sexually exploited is that sometimes they are led to believe that they are not good for anything else in this life except for being sold for their bodies. So having a kind healthcare practitioner talking with them and empowering them and making them feel valued as a human being goes a long way, even if you're not sitting down with them that day and creating a plan to get them out of the situation. Just your kindness and your respect for them and treating what they came in for, whatever it is medically, that establishment of trust and rapport, even if it's a one-time visit, you have impacted that person in ways you may never know. So you both talked about how to sort of see the signs that a patient may be a victim of trafficking and then sort of allowing them to report that to you. And so that's very similar to some of the other topics that we've talked about is letting the patient make that decision. So I want to talk about empowering victims. So how do you empower a victim of trafficking or exploitation? I've thought about this a lot just in terms of my work and all of my work is with young people. And the majority of it, we talk about sexual health and sexual empowerment. And that's with girls, with boys, with transgender youth, no matter how young people identify in terms of sexual orientation. And I really lead with that, with working with young people who have been, who have experienced commercial sexual exploitation. I think number one for me is sort of breaking down the labels. And I really try not to use labels and in terms of coining a young person as CSEC or a sex traffic youth, but really talking about a young person who's been involved with or who's been affected by because it, it leaves a lot of room for movement and for fluidity. And also we know that young people don't always see themselves that way. And so I want to use the words that they use. And I think it's really important when working with young people who have experienced sexual trauma and experienced sexual trauma in the way of commercial sexual exploitation is talking about empowerment and what that means and what that even means to them and talking about sexual health and what that means to them. I think we'd be surprised by uh, how much young people know about their bodies, about sexual health, knowing what sexual health is, knowing the difference between sexual health and sex. And so I really try to draw out that information with a young person who has experienced sexual trauma and talking to them about what their concepts are around sexual health and either the history that they've experienced, if they're ready to talk about that and when they're ready to talk about that or what they would like in the future. I remember seeing a, a young person who was actively involved in exploitation. And one of the biggest things for this young person was getting housing. And the young person talked about how their life was going to change now that they had housing. And that was 
the biggest thing because now they didn't have to stay with their exploiter. They didn't have to live with their exploiter. And they talked about being really excited about having a relationship that would be really different from the relationship that they were having with their exploiter. And so I really took that as a moment to really talk about what that looked like. And that's part of sexual health and talking about what those health, again, those healthy relationships and what that looks like. And then the other thing I just want to mention was about reproductive justice and how we think about family planning for young people people who have experienced sexual exploitation. In a lot of the recent literature that's coming out that gives guidelines around caring for youth who have experienced exploitation, when it talks about contraception, it often mentions that we should be talking about LARC methods and the long-acting reversible contraceptive methods like IUDs and implants and really making sure we bring those up. But when we think about family planning, we really should be talking to a young person about what they want uh, and what kind of contraceptive method they would want if they want contraception at all. And again, so talking about reproductive justice and making sure that we are remaining open for our patients who no matter what their vulnerabilities are in life and that they are still allowed to have a child when they want to have a child, to not have a child when they don't want to have a child, and to also raise their children in healthy and safe communities, which is what reproductive justice is. And I think that we often see the converse happening with young people who have experienced vulnerabilities like commercial sexual exploitation, where we want to think they would be good candidates for an IUD or implant. When it's really, we need to be changing the structural inequity that is leading this person to be very vulnerable to becoming pregnant. And so I really try and also keep that in mind with these conversations. Yes, thank you, Aisha. And I would add that another aspect of empowerment from a sexual health perspective is to really flesh out that education, not just about the whole range of contraceptive methods that are available to them if they want contraception, but about sexual health in general and their and their bodies. And an interesting thing I learned from the youth in LA County that I've worked with, I was talking to a number of the girls. They were uh, ranging from 14 to 16 last year, and they were telling me that they knew some things about sexual health and risks associated with sex. They knew about chlamydia. They knew they'd heard of gonorrhea. And they had gotten the message that these infections cause infertility. And one of the young women who had had chlamydia, she was 15 and said she wanted to get pregnant just to see if she could because she was afraid that she was infertile because she had had chlamydia. So I think they're getting a little bit of information from various sources, but don't necessarily see the whole scope. And there's a survivor that I do trainings with, Savannah Sanders, who shared some PowerPoint slides with me that she's made. And she emphasizes how even though people who are trafficked for sex may be immersed in this world of sex, they often lack basic knowledge about their bodies and how to maintain their health. And that brings me to the concept of harm reduction. We know that it can take a while, even for people who are trying to get out of what's called the life of being commercially sexually exploited, being sold for sex. Because it can take them a while, you want to enable them to protect themselves while they are still at risk for all the things that can happen from those experiences. And that does mean avoiding a pregnancy if you don't want to get pregnant by the person who's exploiting you or a stranger. And it also may mean navigating condom use when you can. It can mean knowing where to go for STI and HIV checks. It can mean knowing the laws about access to reproductive health and sexual health services for minors in your state. It can mean knowing that abortion is still safe and legal, at least for now, and knowing where to get prenatal care if they 
don't want to use contraception and think they want to have a child um, and how to get their bodies healthy for that. So I think the range of um, empowerment from a sexual health perspective is really broad. And then the basic concept of rights. A lot of the foreign national women that I worked with, they were being held as domestic servants when they were trafficked. I saw them when they got out. They were referred to me by an NGO. They were survivors at that point. But they were sometimes in the situation as long as they were because they had no idea what their rights were in the United States. They only knew what their trafficker told them. And they believed that if they went for help, they would have been jailed or deported. So if, if you come across a woman in your clinic and she's working as a domestic helper in somebody's house, you want to make sure she's not actually kept as a servant. And that you can get to that by asking about sleep and a little social history, occupational history questions. And th- some states have a, a domestic workers' bill of rights or other laws that will help protect people and give them a, a community they can reach out to for support so they're not so isolated and alone. And that's another form of empowerment. So you both mentioned several resources or references along the way during this interview that providers may use. Could you sort of recap those references again and suggest any others before we go? Sure. So the National Human Trafficking Hotline that I referenced earlier is 1-888-373-7888. And again, you may have a local task force in your region that you'd want to reach out to to find out who's available. I would recommend Heal Trafficking as a website for all of you in the healthcare community who are interested in this topic. We are a centralized resource on trafficking for the healthcare community and a centralized resource on health for the anti-trafficking community. And you can find us at healtrafficking.org. And a resource I mentioned earlier is the protocol toolkit for developing a response to victims in healthcare settings. And that is available for a free download on our website under uh, linkages or resources. I'd also recommend that if you're interested in the screening questions, there's a new document from the National Human Trafficking Technical Assistance Center and the Department of Health and Human Services on assessing victims for human trafficking. And that would be available on the, you can go to the National Human Trafficking Technical Assistance Center website. And then the Polaris Project, which actually runs the National Human Trafficking Hotline, um, is also another great national resource around national laws and just national information. And so you can just go online and search for Polaris Project. And then there's a really great paper by another colleague by the name of Dr. Jordan Greenbaum out of Atlanta. It was a paper that was published in Pediatrics in 2017 that gives a very nice summary of the scope of human trafficking, the scope of childhood commercial sexual exploitation, goes into the medical provider's role, has some information on screening questions, and then also some other resources. And so it's a really nice paper there. And then also I would just say, if you are a a medical provider or trying to figure out how you can further support patients who may be experiencing human trafficking, another great way is also signage in your clinic to say that you're a safe space. So having signage around. And if a person is experiencing signs of labor trafficking, if a person is experiencing signs of commercial exploitation, that this is a safe space to have resources and to have support. Because sometimes it really just takes a person seeing something for themselves in that space to know that this is a place where they can provide support and receive support. 
And just a reminder to our listeners too, we will have all the links and all the phone numbers and all of the web pages and articles that are mentioned in this podcast. We will have those in our show notes. And our show notes are available on our Patreon page. So I guess in just wrapping up, we'd both like to thank you so much for your time and commitment to advancing sexual and reproductive health through communication. I know that we could probably keep talking for another couple hours about this topic, but do you have any last thoughts you'd like to add before we end? I think we can't underscore the importance of our community partners in providing support for people who have been affected by human trafficking, by commercial sexual exploitation. It really is an interdisciplinary effort. And so really finding the community partners that are doing this work on the ground day to day to support our healthcare efforts is really key. And then I'll say one other thing for young people who have been affected by sex trafficking is really thinking about also our transitional age youth and that this trauma doesn't end at age 18, but it does extend into the 20s. And so although the laws are not designed to protect our transitional age youth, age 19 to 24, we know that those youth are also equally affected and experience commercial sex transportation in very similar ways. And I would add that the same way it's important to know our multidisciplinary partners who are essential to the response, as much as I've devoted much of the last 13 years to human trafficking, I increasingly believe that we need to partner in the anti-trafficking movement with other advocates in violence prevention and response. It's going to be easier for you to find colleagues working on child abuse and domestic violence than colleagues working on trafficking specifically. But a lot of the things we need to do are the same. Although the resources and referrals may vary somewhat, a lot of the response to these patients and the environments we need to create to help these patients feel comfortable with us are the same. So we can all bond together that way and try to create more trauma-informed systems of care. I would also say that as a nation, I am really worried now that we are creating more vulnerability to trafficking through our economic structures, through our immigration policies, and that I urge just collectively to try to protect the most vulnerable among us and not force people into the shadows. There are already many people working in the shadows in this country, and that is where they become vulnerable to trafficking and and the horrible violence that accompanies it. So let's try to keep us all safe and well. Yes, very well said. Yes, thank you for talking about this really important topic with us today. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you. And as always, we hope that you enjoyed another episode of WChat. Did you know that you can get our show notes for every episode just by becoming a patron of our podcast? Check out our website to find out how you can become a patron and keep us recording at www.womencenteredhealth.com. Just click on the support us slash Patreon tab. Also on our website, you can send us your thoughts and let us know if you are interested in being on our podcast. Otherwise, be sure to follow us on Twitter at woman underscore centered and on Facebook. Oh.